invite you to pick up a Bible and turn to page 900. If you're using one of our Bibles, page 900. The Gospel of John, chapter 13. John chapter 13 begins what is called the Upper Room Discourse, that is the teaching of Jesus on the last night of his life in the Upper Room in Jerusalem in which he celebrated the last Passover with his disciples. I'm going to begin reading in verse 31, and this follows immediately after Judas left to betray the Lord. John chapter 13, beginning in verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Our gracious God, our loving Heavenly Father, you are worthy of all of our worship and our praise. And you are also the God who has spoken to us in your word and given us your word. And we apply to ourselves the image your word uses that you speak to us through your word as a father speaks to his children. You know us through and through. You know our past. You know all our words. You know our character. You know our future. And so we pray, as we often do when we come to you together and open your word, we pray that you yourself would open our minds to understand and respond to what we find. Speak to us in a way that each one of us needs according to our capacity to receive it. And we pray that you would use this to strengthen us in our desire to live for you. Thank you that you have not left us alone in this world, but you have given to us a revelation of yourself that is written down that tells us the truth about ourselves and about you and what you want us to know for our eternal good. And we want to listen, and we ask that this morning, by your Spirit, you would speak to us and teach us yourself, Father, as we come to you in the name of your only Son, Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, on the first Sunday of the month, we have a custom of celebrating the Lord's Supper in which we take the bread and the cup and we set them aside to be for us effective signs that point us to Jesus and who he is and what he's done. We do this because of what he told us to do at the Last Supper. The, the passage that I said, or just read, is 
in the context, in the upper room, where he gave this remembrance meal for us to participate in together to us. And when we celebrate communion as Christians, we gather ourselves together around the Lord's table and we place ourselves back in that setting in which he first spoke. He spoke to the founders of the Christian movement, the 11 apostles, and he gave them certain teaching, but it was obviously designed not just for them, but for us as well. In fact, he says in the discourse that follows, the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance everything I have spoken to you. And that is what we rely upon, that in this case, the Apostle John, in reflecting back on the things that he heard in the upper room that he didn't understand very well at that point, had, had now come to a full understanding, and he was writing them down for our benefit. And there in the upper room where they were gathered together, Judas left, and right after that it says, Jesus said, now the time has come. Everything that his life was oriented towards, the reason ultimately why he came was about to take place. And many things had happened in the course of getting to that point, but Jesus had said to them earlier, the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And in fact, the time had come for him to die in the place of sinful human beings. That's what they were about to experience. And even though they didn't understand what he meant, he was saying, the time has come. Everything that I have come for is now going to reach fruition. And then he says to him, as I told the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. They wouldn't have had a clue what he was talking about. But it is true that in the Gospel of John, twice before this, he had said to the Jewish leaders, I, I am going to depart and you will not be able to follow me. The difference is in the passages that follow this and the teaching of Jesus. He goes on and says uh, shortly after this to the apostles, I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I am going, I, I will bring you to be with me at some future time. But he was saying, I'm going to depart. You're not going to be able to be with me. And that is true of us today, that we are not present with the Lord in his very physical presence, as we will be someday, we are told, in the place that he has prepared for us. So he says, you're not going to be with me for a time. I'm not going to be with you, but here's what I want you to occupy yourself with during my absence. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now, he calls that a new commandment, and that's always been sort of a mystery to people, because it's not really new, the commandment to love one another. Uh, that it was taught in the Old Testament. Jesus, of course, is quoted in Matthew chapter 23 as answering a question of a, a religious leader. And the religious leader says, how do you summarize the whole law, the entire Old Testament? And Jesus said, love God with your whole being and love your neighbor as yourself, quoting two passages from the law. And, and that, that is an adequate summary of everything the law teaches uh, that had been said before Jesus. That wasn't new with Jesus. Love was thought to be the inner and central purpose of the Old Testament, love for God and love for neighbor. So this wasn't completely new in a sense of no one had ever heard this command before. But I want to ask this morning, what does he mean then by new? And there are three things, and these three things help us to understand the significance of this command, love one another and what it means for us today. There are three ways in which this is new. The first is that he prescribes a new standard. 
he gives a new standard connected with the command. The second one is that he connects it to a new order, we might say. And the third is that he gives it a new emphasis. And it's those three things, a new standard, a new order, and a new emphasis that we can think about for a few moments. You know, people have many different ways of identifying Christians. Uh, often Christians are identified by the presence of a cross. We don't have a cross up front right now. We do have a cross that we put out periodically. It's a good symbol of the Christian faith. It's not one that was used symbolically in the New Testament. That came later. But a cross is a symbol of the presence of Christians. However, people like Madonna wear a cross in her performances. And she's not necessarily a good representative of Christ. So that's not a very perfect symbol. I mean, it can be misused and misidentify someone and what they're standing for. Other people might say, well, it's the presence of a church, like a building that people can go to. I've often heard that, particularly in third world countries or places where the gospel has never gone before. They want to build a church and identify it as a building where Christians meet because they have no other way, they believe, of gaining a, a hearing in society but having a building. And there's nothing wrong with buildings. We're meeting in one now. But the fact is a building is not always a very good representation of the presence of Christians. And there are many other symbols people can use, but, but the fact is Jesus gave us one distinguishing mark. It's the one way he said that people all over the world are going to be able to identify the presence of genuine Christians, he said, if you love one another. Now, why is that a new commandment? Well, the first is it's connected with a new standard that's obvious in the passage. If you look at it, he says in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Then he draws it out a little bit further. He says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, that phrase, just as I have loved you, gives a standard that hadn't been given before. The, the measure of the kind of love with which Christians are to love each other is the sacrificial death of Christ. Again, think of the apostles in the upper room. It's so interesting. In the Gospels, the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are called the synoptic Gospels, means to see together because they're very similar in their chronological unfolding of the life of Christ. In all three of those, one thing that ties them all together is that three times during his last journey to Jerusalem, Jesus predicted his death. And he predicted it very clearly, but it says that they didn't understand what he was talking about. They had different expectations about who the Messiah was and what he was going to do. And if there was going to be a death, they couldn't quite fit it in to their expectation of how he was going to reign. So they were mystified by it. But note how Jesus says it as though it has already been fulfilled. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And he's looking back to the same thing he did right before this at the foot washing. At the foot washing, he said, what I am doing you can't understand right now. Because what he was doing was portraying for them in a visible way the cleansing that he was about to provide through his death on the cross. And they didn't yet understand the cross and see its significance. They would, but they didn't yet. 
And so he's saying, you won't understand the full significance of this. You can understand that this foot washing is an act of service. And that's a good thing. I want you to know that, he says. But you can't understand the full significance until it's fulfilled. But he states it here again as though it had always already fulfilled. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And he's not simply speaking of the fact that he has loved them and drawing them together and teaching them the things and providing them the things that they need. He, if that's not all, he's talking about the whole purpose of his coming, his death on the cross, the way in which God showed his supreme love to sinful human beings. Just as I have done this, as though it were already fulfilled because Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, as Peter said. It's as though he had already completed that which was the primary purpose of his coming. Everything looked forward to it. Everything looks back to it. And Jesus was giving a new standard. This is the standard by which you must love, the self-giving, self-sacrificial love that I will show you when I die on the cross in your place. That's the standard we're given. And you, you can think about that and mull that over for the rest of your life. And what happens is it's like life for a Christian follower is, uh, is like a circle. It's a never-ending circle it moves like this. First, we begin to see something about our sinfulness. And as we, we begin to understand how offensive to God our sin is, we recognize in Christ's death on the cross the antidote to our sin. And we see something about the level of the love that he gave to us when he died on the cross. And when we begin to appreciate the level of the love that he gave to us, we see that the standard that he has given to us is higher than we could ever meet. It's a, a standard that is absent of all selfishness and self-aggrandizement, and it's focused solely on the needs of the other. And as we see that standard, we look at our own life and we see how selfish we are and how, how far short we fall. And then we go again to him and we see at the cross the depth of his love. And it's like this circle that we are continually being drawn in. The man who discipled me when I became a Christian at age 19 said, the closer you get to a bright light, the dirtier you realize you are. And that's saying the same thing. So Jesus said, this is a new commandment because he connected it with a standard that had never been shown before, that is God's self-giving love in Christ. And then he, he connects it to a new order. Now this one's a little bit hard to see in the passage, but it permeates the whole purpose why is there. Remember how at the Last Supper, the Lord held up the cup at the conclusion of the meal, and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And what he was doing is he was taking the bread and the cup, and he was giving to them out of the, the Passover meal, separating them from all of the other elements of the meal, and giving them a new significant that they would represent the new covenant. Well, the new covenant is what the whole Old Testament pointed towards, even though it's only spoken of clearly in the later prophets, but it says that God would establish a new covenant. It would fulfill the old covenant that was made with the people of God at Mount Sinai in the Arabian Peninsula. It would fulfill it and supersede it. It would come when the Messiah came. And when the new covenant was established, which is what Jesus established at the cross, when it was established, um, he would give, God says in the prophet Jeremiah, he would give a new heart and put a new spirit inside of his people. 
And that is the promise that we rely upon in the new covenant. You see, when the old covenant was established, there was nothing wrong with the commands that God gave. And at Mount Sinai, the people stood there and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, where that's recorded, it tells us about that point where the people accepted the covenant. They accepted this relationship with God and the, the stipulations that he had given for them as to how to maintain their fellowship with God. God said this, Oh, that you had a heart to do what I command you always. It's, it's the most wistful saying in the Old Testament. God is saying, I know that you can't do this. Your acceptance of the covenant is right and it's good, but there's something wrong. And what is wrong is there's something wrong with the human heart. Unless I give a new heart and a new spirit, you will not be able to do the things that God commands. But the promise of the new covenant is in imparting to us his spirit, he, in fact, for every person who is connected to Christ by faith, he gives to us a new heart. And he places a new spirit inside of us and he establishes this new order. Now what happens is those who have a new heart, they naturally begin to identify with others who have a new heart. Even if we were not told to form ourselves into churches, that would happen. Because we would find those who have similar love for Jesus and they rejoice in the forgiveness that he gave. And we would want to be with them and spend time with them. And all that the church is, is it's a meeting of people who are seeking to do that together. And so this is a new commandment because it's connected with a whole new order. It's connected with an order in which now all of the people of God possess the Spirit and have the ability to do what God commands. And we can encourage and strengthen each other to do that. And then he says not only is it um, a new standard and a new order, but it's connected with a, a new emphasis, or he gives it a new emphasis. And by that what I mean is it says... Verse 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Love one another. Now that is a, a different emphasis than some other earlier passages of the Bible. For example, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. This is not written in contrast to that as though Jesus were saying, now that I have my closest followers here, I want you to know you really need to love one another. Forget about all those people outside. That's not what he's saying. It's not meant to contrast it. it. It's not meant to be different or contrast the, the kind of love that God has in the Gospel of John. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that is the love that he also puts inside of us. That we love the world of sinful people who are on a reckless course away from God. We love them and long to draw them in. That, that's part of what it means to live. But He's giving a different emphasis here, and I would call it, this is the family emphasis within the confines of the distinction of the people of God. He says to the apostles, the founders of the movement, and through them to all of us as well, he's speaking now, he says, love one another. Because you see, the kind of love that is experienced within a family is the basis, the only firm basis, upon which any other kind of love can be shown. The love that is shown inside a family we might call sacrificial love. I would like to think that if my wife or children were ever at a point where it was needed that I would die for them, I would do it in a moment. There would be no question about it. Because of the connection that I feel on a human level with them, 
I have love for other people too, and there might be an occasion in which I would die, but that's the love of compassion for every person who is hurting in the world. But that is more questionable. It, it can only truly be seen in the love that I feel within the family. You see, think about a family. A family is, is a, a healthy family is meant to have two qualities at the same time. On one hand, a, a healthy family has to have a distinctiveness, a um, a solidarity with one another. This is like the camaraderie of being connected to one another. Families live in the same house, and we allow things to go on within the household that we don't do out in the rest of the world. That's how families work, because a family is a unit of people who are working and acting together and have a special relationship with each other. And that distinction and the way they treat each other within the family is the basis on which they can scatter after they gather to eat and they can go out into the world and do all the different things that they do and care for other people. Have you ever been to a gathering? I've experienced this uh, myself, uh, but also heard other people say this. You may never have experienced this self, but you'll understand what I mean. Have you ever been someplace where a family is together, perhaps a birthday party for someone, and you've been invited to be a part of it, or you've invited someone to be a part of yours, and you feel inside yourself, or the person who has come says, I wish I could be a part of this thing. Many of you know what I mean, that feeling. Every once in a while, like, man, if I could have experienced this, maybe I wouldn't struggle with certain things that I do in life. I've heard people say that. Sometimes when they see a very loving family together and they think about maybe a person thinks, I didn't have a father. Or my father wasn't there. or He was so quiet. He never said anything or whatever. It's this sense that families have a solidarity, a healthy family. They maintain a sense of distinction. There are times when just the family is together, but a healthy family also has to have an outward focus as well. Family doesn't exist just to be together. A family exists to raise children who go out and multiply and, and be a part of other families and influence society. Families have meals together, but a healthy family invites other people to be a part of the meal at times. Families have to have a distinction, and they also have to have an outward focus. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's now speaking a family truth within the people of God. He's saying, love one another. And the standard that I give you is my sacrificial death on the cross in the place of sin. You know, this is a this is a truth that it's kind of like a, a toddler can understand this. A toddler can memorize these words, love one another. A toddler can even begin to grasp what that means, at least within his family or her family. But a mature Christian can reflect on this regularly, love one another, and acknowledge how far short they fall of doing that in so many ways. I mean, this is the central command. Remember, we're in the upper room at the Lord's Supper, and Jesus is saying, here's what I want you to occupy yourselves with. During the time that we're apart, I want you to occupy yourselves with loving one another and caring for one another because the way the family cares for each other is going to beckon other people to come in and say, we want to be a part of that. And the family of God is a family that is not only distinct as we meet together in distinct communities, but it's also 
permeable. We draw others in and we invite people to attach themselves to Jesus Christ, to find God as their Father, to experience forgiveness of sins, and to become a part of what we are doing. You know, um, the power of a unified and loving church is really an unstoppable force in the world. When you go into a, a church and you find people speaking ill of each other or just standing around and ignoring each other, you, you don't feel like this is the kind of family that I would like to be a part of. But when you go into a church in meetings and you see people interact and you feel that they really care for each other in magnificent ways, you feel like this is what I want to be a part of. And that's what God seeks to make us. In fact, the Lord's Supper, which we're about to celebrate, is meant to be one of the ways in which he works in order to unite us together to each other and to him. This is like the family table. And just as the apostles came and they took and they ate and they drank with him. And Jesus said, do this as often as you drink it, eat it in remembrance of me. In the same way, we come to him and we ask him to be at work among us to strengthen us at the family table that we might love one another just as he has loved us. So let's pray. Again, our gracious God, we thank you that you give to us this simple way of remembering our Lord Jesus Christ. We acknowledge as we meet here that this is not something that we have made up. This is something that from that night in the upper room, we are told to do purposefully and intentionally take the bread and the cup and to set them aside to be for us effective signs and to use them in eating and drinking them as a physical and visible reminder of your grace that you showed us at the cross. The fact that our forgiveness is tied up completely in who Jesus is and what he has done. That our life together is tied up with being bound together in Christ by the Spirit and each possessing the power of the Spirit. And we pray that today, as we share in this together, you would give us an experience. And we ask this in Jesus' name.